0: As I read the scripture this morning, I invite to, uh, you to shift your point of engagement. Uh, I want you to visualize this. So, if you would just close your eyes with me, and we're going to hear of the first miracle recorded in John's gospel in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine. I invite you to see this uh, as the story unfolds. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother told the servants, "Whatever whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water jars there. For Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them to the very top. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. And when the head steward tasted the water that had been turned into wine, not knowing where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. We're looking at the miracle of the incarnation, the birth of Christ, through the stories of miracles, other miracles, and the life of Jesus. We're looking at themes and, and ways the, this miracle thing plays out in the Bible so we uh, have a better understanding of, uh, again, who Jesus is and the miracle of the incarnation, but also how miracles work. And one of the things that we're discovering as we've told these stories is that a biblical miracle is not really a miracle until we are made a part of it that um, we we think of the, the big Advent themes that we're called to, like hope uh, and the call to hope we hear uh, early on in Advent or to, to love or last week to peace, this week to joy. We hear those and we almost always Im- uh, immediately go to external factors that play into peace on earth or joy to the world. Those are sort of big categories, aren't they? And what we're discovering is that the miracle really is actually... Not an external thing, but this internal thing, at least first. It's not a miracle until we're made part of it, and it's, and it's a lived reality in us. And the miracle is that it can be. Uh, the thing that we're called to uh, keep our expectations high about is that, that that miracle can happen in us. So the Advent challenge and the challenge of the spiritual life is to, to believe these things are possible for us. And that's maybe perhaps the the biggest miracle. And and joy is uh, maybe the hardest one. I'm glad we've saved it uh, for for this point. Because I think it can be, and we're going to talk today, why joy is a difficult idea, a difficult experience for us. Joy can be a difficult one. This is an oldie but a goodie, uh, this picture, uh, that gets at that tension that we feel. I mean, amen, right? So um, I remember preaching a a sermon on joy back in uh, Patronville, UMC, which would have been the late 90s. Uh, Jenny and I, were we got married in college, so we we were dating or married. I think we were married uh, by this point. We would have been probably. And um, it was like finals time in college, and so we were exhausted. We ran to the finish line, and then I had the sermon, and the sermon was on joy. And after the sermon was over, I said, hey, Jenny, what'd you think? And she said... Mm. and that's never a good sign, right? I'm not sure the mood matched the message. Again, you don't want to hear that, right? T- talking about joy and experiencing joy can, can be kind of two different things. And yet, as, as Martha's done so well, kind of uh, teeing us up, there's some important things to understand about joy. It's, it's a big deal. We've used the word fierce joy today to get at the power of it uh, and, um, and the resistance of, of joy. And at the same time, we can't just say, oh, just be happy. But that is not the message and it, and it, and it can't be. It, and sometimes the church does, I think, say like, if you believe in Jesus, just be happy. If you, if you trust God, why are you sad? That's, that's not what we're doing here. It is a call to real joy. And joy can be hard at Christmas. Many of us are grieving during the holiday season And there's no fandangling of words that changes that dynamic. There's no easy path through that. And we especially pray for those for whom this is the first time without a loved one during this holiday season. Sometimes our family expectations and reality don't match up, and that can be a challenge. And there's not necessarily an easy way to do that. There There are wrong ways to do it, but perhaps not an easy way to get through it. Maybe the circumstances of your life, particularly now, are challenging, and the holiday season come or go doesn't really matter as we talk about things that are important, health and job and relationship status, and how we go through transitions in life, and maybe our losses just have stacked up. Those are real realities. Happiness depends on a lot of things, and some of that is out of our control. We just want to acknowledge that. There are a lot of things that we aren't in control of. We aren't in control of what other people do. We aren't in control of our brain chemistry. And so things like mental illness and depression are a part of the conversation when it comes to joy. But but we can't just pray our way out of those things. We aren't always in control of what happens to us. But taking all of that into account, taking all of that into account, I think joy is still a challenge for, for us. It's still hard for us and why it is perhaps miraculous, a miraculous thing to talk about. So let me tell you why I think that might be a couple things, and then we're going to tell the story of Jesus turning water into wine. First reason I think is why joy would be a real miracle for us is that joy is the hardest emotion. We have this thing uh, that we do when we are starting to experience something good. we we have this tendency to sort of nip it in the bud. It's sort of the um, shoe, uh, the other shoe's going to drop syndrome, right? We start to experience joy. Do you ever do this? And then say, "Oh, knock on wood," or "This is a good thing," but, and we almost just psychologically are, are afraid to take the risk to just feel goodness when it happens. We're shortcutting our joy because it's a, it's a risky emo- emotion. It's a hard emotion. To open yourself up to joy, kind of do this with me. Just kind of like open up your body a little bit. What's that? It feels vulnerable, right? You're opening yourself up. It, looks, it could also be like a target where you're, you're, as soon as you open yourself up, somebody will come in and get you. Foreboding joy, waiting for the other shoe to drop. So we numb ourselves to hardship, but at the same time, numb ourselves to joy. Somebody said, the walls that we build around us to keep out the sadness also keep out the joy. And so we tell a story at Christmas, the miracle of the incarnation of God who is willing to take the risk. And so the call to joy is a call that actually God incarnates first. God comes as vulnerable as it gets, unguarded as it gets, risking all of it somehow thinking that we're worth it. It's amazing. The second reason why joy is hard for us is that there are forces working against it. This isn't just you. We need to name this. The drift of our culture is away from joy. C.S. Lewis has said uh, uh, that essentially he's he's afraid that everything that uh, is a a pleasure in life is just a, a bad substitute for joy. And there are a lot of forces that are working against us. And And we need to be aware of that. The messages of of the culture are that we don't need God, that we don't need each other, and that we are here to consume. And at Christmas, we tell the story that is just the opposite of that, a a story of desperate need for God, a God who is, in fact, with us because that's the most important thing that we need, Uh, that we actually need each other. It is a, a, a story of the world coming together in Christ Entering into relationships with one another that are now more like the relationship God has, the kind of love that God has, the kind of peace that God has, the kind of joy that God has. God redefining every human encounter, every human relationship through his relationship with us. And we can't live like we don't need each other. And then ultimately, it is a story of God giving. It is a story of us being drawn into that same giving. So that we learn we're actually here to give our lives away. We're not here to consume. We're here to give. The other reason I think, the more profound reason why I think joy is hard for us, is that we aren't told the story of the joyful Jesus. That we, that we tell the story of, of Christ and we, we don't see it through the right lens. We don't tell the story right, ultimately. Ultimately. I was listening to a little snippet by the comedian Nate Bergassi. Anybody know him? Anybody go to see him when he was here? Uh, We wanted to, but we had our annual conference meeting, our church meeting, and so I went to that instead. Yay. Um, (laughs) But I really wanted to go to see him, not that the church stuff wasn't, Meaningful, the um. Uh, so I was watching a little snippet, and he was talking about growing up in an evangelical Christian household, and I, he was not running that life down. Uh, and many of us can be thankful for our, our church upbringing, our fa- our faith upbringing, in v- various ways. But there are also always going to be legacies. The, the tough part about adult faith is you have to parse out what parts of the, what you were taught were were dead on right and which ones were dead on wrong, and which ones were sort of in the middle. And that is a spiritual process that I don't think we talk enough about. So he was talking about that, talking about growing up in the 80s and 90s, and he said that was when it was real. Like in the 80s and 90s, those Christian parenting, uh, his parents uh, were were, um, keeping him kind of in line. And then he said, I was kind of tracking with him, and then he said, I think Jesus had more fun growing up than I did. But doesn't that reveal that we actually don't tell the story of Jesus, right? The assumption is that Jesus was something other than an awesome, fun kid growing up. and That Mary and Joseph were somehow strict in keeping him. Like The story that we tell is not a story of a joyful Jesus, and that is consistent of his whole life, I think. I think we're missing the point. In fact, uh, Pastor Laura found this picture of, of Jesus and that they're hanging up at the Greenwood campus. Now, the awesome thing about this, she just uh, was on this kick that we need to have more pictures of this Jesus because there are also the other sides of Jesus. But pay attention to when Jesus is harsh or when he's hard on people and when he's not. That's another sermon for another day. But we don't tell the the point being, we don't tell the story of the joyful Jesus enough. We don't start here. And um, so she, she found this. She went looking for a picture of the joyful Jesus, found it, and bought it. It turns out, the artist had just made his website live. Like sounds like like five seconds before Laura went online, and she bought it. We're the first people. Broadway's the first people to buy this. How cool is that? He reached out to her. He's from another country. He's in I think Great Britain. He didn't know how to send it to us. And by this point, we were in. Like we're gonna find. A, we're gonna find a way. And so part of like, why that looks good is he also sent us the digital copy. So that's that. Um, But as the the reason why Pastor Laura got to this is because at some point earlier in another series, she had used a picture of a Jesus that was smiling. And person after person after person came to her and said, that's not the picture of Jesus I grew up with. I think Jesus had more fun as a kid than I did. Well, that idea that there is a a joy component to this that we need to understand better is the story of John 2. John is all about signs. So when we talk about miracles in this series, we need to understand John's angle on it. And John's angle on miracles is that they are a sign. They're a sign of something that God is doing now and in the ultimate sense. They have meaning, but they have meaning outside of just the, the, the narrow focus. And so my favorite description of John's gospel is um, that he is sort of the ethereal gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of telling a a story and, uh, and, and want to do it in an orderly way. Someone has said, John wants to take you up to the top of the mountain and say, on a clear day, you can see for miles. He wants us to have that bigger picture. And so these little stories are signs of something bigger. And a miracle is a sign of that dynamic. And so, isn't it interesting that the first miracle in John's gospel is this one? I think it hits us strange. The first miracle of John's gospel is of Jesus keeping the party going. And that is, speaks to our mismatch in our understanding of Jesus. If we think that's weird, it shows that we don't understand Jesus, and we don't really know how to party as well as we think we do. Thank you. So let's talk about this thing that we don't really understand because we don't get joy. First thing, John tells us this miracle happened on the third day. Now, John's symbolic as it can be, right? So the third day ought to trigger an idea in our head. It's not just this, this scenario. Pan back out, see for miles. What else is he talking about? What's the other third day? This is a story of resurrection, of of possibility beyond our current understanding. It's a sign of that. Mary's there, the, the story tells us, and Mary's only mentioned twice in John. It's here and at the cross. Another symbolic meaning. Martha mentioned earlier as we are leading worship that this is a story that's joy in both in the highs and the lows, at every point in between. Mary symbolizes that. When we were in Israel, one of the things that we didn't talk about in that last series was that we went to Cana of Galilee. We went there, and there's some, some things about that place that were interesting. One, there's a, a, a church, a wedding chapel essentially there that they have built so that you can renew your vows at the place where there was this wedding. Uh, and so couples were in there doing that, and then they will sell you a certificate that, that makes it official, they will also sell you something else. You might guess what it is. Wine. They will sell you, yeah, they will sell you pretty much anything, but they'll sell you wine there. And um, the area is known for its pomegranate wine. How many of you had pomegranate wine? How many of you liked it? All the hands went down. Um, <laughs> they will sell you grape wine too. Uh, so uh, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, but um, maybe the more important thing, the more important discovery of Cana... Uh, and of, of this story uh, is actually in the text itself. As I had you visualize this, this um, story, and we got to the point where they took those ceremonial basins or pitchers or whatever and filled them with wine, it actually tells you how big they are. Did you catch it? How, how much water do they hold? 20 or 30 gallons, right? 20 or 30 gallons is a lot of water. 20 or 30 gallons is a lot of wine, right? So this is a picture of the, the basin. It's a big stone thing. Uh, you got some of our people in the back behind it. So it gives you some some context, some um, spatial cues there. And then the next one that shows you that down into it a little bit. Well, that kind of helps us understand the story a little bit, doesn't it? These are symbols of extravagance there's a, this is a lot this is a lot of wine which isn't just about um, sort of getting it's not about getting drunk it's about abundance it's about possibility the wine is distributed and here the abundance is shared and this is a theme that we find in the stories when the feeding of the 5000 it wasn't the miracle until it was handed to the disciples and then it wasn't a miracle till the disciples handed the bread and, to, and the juice. Uh, the the bread and the fish, to the uh, 5,000, and then they become part of the miracle. The same last week in the calming of the storm, the miracle of peace isn't just that the wind and the waves obey Jesus, but the disciples are standing there also at peace, wondering who Jesus is and are made part of the miracle. And now here at the wedding feast that symbolizes God's goodness and abundance, the people are brought into the miracle through their celebration. And this is probably not how we think of celebration. Those of us who are getting ready to do just that, celebrate Christmas, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, this is probably not how we think of celebration as becoming part of the miracle that is God's joy. But perhaps we should. So let's go deeper. A couple things that, that we need to understand. A wedding is a big deal. So this is the, the contest. It's a wedding. It's a big deal. I don't know the last time you were a part of a wedding. I'm a part of them every once in a while. People make big deals about them. Maybe you've noticed. And they like to get the details right. Like some more than others. Some are kind of easygoing and just are able to be in the moment. Some a little more, what's the word, particular, focused on every, some of you, I see people getting ready to plan weddings. You see where you are and there are a lot of details. It can be stressful. Running out of wine is a big deal. And especially in a communal setting that takes celebration seriously, their job is to host the community and create a place where people who don't have a lot can, can forget their other things and be present with one another and God and the couple and celebrate. In ancient times, being a bad host would be a source of great shame for the family, and it might even be an omen for the wedding itself. I saw a, a thing recently where a couple had gotten married, and they wanted the newspaper headline for the paper, hometown paper, uh, from that day, so they had somebody get it, and on the, the headline, the big bold letters at the top of the paper said, tragic mistake. Hmm. Or like the wedding that I did where the unity candle would not stay lit, would not, just over. It was like, what do you do? Do we just call the whole thing off? It's a bad sign. Running out of wine is a bad sign. And so then notice what, what Jesus does with this. And this is why we belabor the point. Because the miracle isn't just getting through that kind of what could have been a disaster back to zero, is it? He takes this thing that is a disaster and turns it into the complete opposite of disaster. The miracle is the shift of the entire story from one of inadequacy to now a story that's told about abundance. And we catch that as the steward goes to the bridegroom, not knowing how it all happened, and said, you've done a thing. We we were about to call you all sort of cheap but now we're going to call you generous. The provision goes from meager to extravagant. The experience goes from scarcity to abundance. The other thing that we need to understand is the banquet is not just a banquet. For John and really in the Gospels in general, the banquet is a common metaphor for the life abundant that God offers us. Jesus' most common metaphor for an invitation into the kingdom is an invitation to a party. It's an invitation that we get to choose to accept or not as we think about how we will engage things. And some of those stories involve people saying, I don't have time for celebration because I have to do other things. Maybe you can relate. And this also reveals that we just don't really yet get how important celebration is as part of our life with God. A banquet is a symbol of heaven. It is a symbol of life spent in the presence of God, in the fullness of life that God makes possible forever. In the completeness of that, forever. And the life and healing and wholeness that only God can bring forever. Forever. And so we have two pictures that we need to get right of Jesus, as we've already said. One is the look on Jesus' face when we meet him. I don't know if you've envisioned that day when you meet Jesus face to face. But if it's something other than a missy-eyed smile, then there's a good chance that you've been told the wrong story. The other picture, I think, is the one that we get at Christmas. The picture, sort of like the Friends episode when everybody's leaning over the baby. Um, Maybe you don't remember that. But that's the picture of the manger as they lean over in the sweet face of an innocent, unguarded child that symbolizes God's risk. The words of one of our Christmas hymns, there's a tumult of joy over the wonderful birth for Mary, sweet boy, is the Lord of the earth. Look, the star rains its fire while the beautiful sing for the manger of Bethlehem cradles a king. The good news of this joy is that it is not dependent on our circumstances. Yes, we will grieve, but that does not preclude joy even in the midst of our sorrow. They aren't mutually exclusive. They can exist in the same space. Yes, we might struggle and we don't have to pretend, and yet we have someone there with us in the struggle. As in Bethlehem, God has taken the story from one that would have been disastrous and has turned it into one of abundance. And so today I invite you to actually celebrate Christmas. That may seem simple, but I think we've made clear that it's Maybe not as simple as it sounds. Today, I invite you to actually celebrate this Christmas as a deeply spiritual act. Today's message is a call to joy-filled celebration. And you might be tempted to do other things in the midst of the celebration. You might be tempted to stress through, through busyness. You might be tempted to talk about what's wrong with the world and to discuss politics at the Christmas table. Don't. Ain't nobody got time for that, as they say, because it is not what we're here to do. That's not our task. There's enough talk about what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. There is not enough celebration. There's not enough joy. And we are the ones responsible for the miracle. God has placed that into our hands and intends to make us part of the miracle. God himself taking that risk to come unguarded and be vulnerable and open now invites us into that miracle. So we're going to close uh, before we come to communion with this liturgy. It is from uh, Every Moment Holy, a book that has several prayers and liturgies. It is a liturgy I've used a couple times, a liturgy for feasting with friends. But I invite you to engage this like it matters, uh, to take your joy seriously, so to speak. And um, I will do the pastor part because that's me, and then you will do the people part because that is you. And let's uh, hear this as a call to our celebration this Christmas. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. Let's join together. In celebrating this Christmas, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears, We declare that the joy of fellowship, the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. Amen. Thank you for that.